do that there as well. Okay, so I would ask you, if you can, to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read this section that we're going to cover today. It's in Matthew chapter 7. It'll be on the screen. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to finish the reading with a phrase, this is the word of the Lord, and then you will say, Man, we are getting so good at this. I am so encouraged. Okay, so Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Have a seat. Okay. Well done. I'm excited about today's passage uh, in particular because it's on the subject of judging others. Yes. Very exciting content. I'm excited to get into it. But before we get to that, uh, I want to tell you a, a little bit of a story. So uh, last week, we got to go, my wife and I, Thea, got to go and attend Pirate Night. And if you don't know what that is, that is Whitworth University's Athletics Fundraiser. And we had a really, we did, we really had a great time at the event. I'm, a, I'm an alum myself. Um, but something happened during that event that has me a bit uncomfortable, really had me a bit uncomfortable there. They played a video. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about it. They played a video of current students, student athletes in particular, and they were shown a cultural relic from a past era. Beeper, an old cell phone, right? Things that were from a time past. And they had to identify what that item was. It was meant to be funny, of course, but that wasn't the uncomfortable part. The uncomfortable part was that a number of the items that were considered vintage or antique uh, were items that arrived in my lifetime. Yeah, and I know some of you can relate to that. This was, of course, this blatant reminder that a number of people, including some of the people in this very room, look at me and think, that dude's old. And it's not a comfortable feeling, right? It's just not. One of the most revealing parts of my aging is that I can now recognize multiple cycles of popular trends, right? You can, some of you can empathize with that. Here's an example. Uh, in an age where there is just insane distraction and all kinds of media pollution, it is becoming popular to return to a simple phone, right? Some people call it dumb phone, but I think the appropriate term is a simple phone. Now, I remember when I got my first cell phone, that was our best option, right? <laughs> The, the Motorola Razor, anybody have one of those? Uh, that was the peak of cell phone technology, and now it's a celebrated downgrade to declutter one's mind and one's life. Another thing um, that has begun to reemerge as fashionable uh, is print media. Now, I know this never went away, 
Um, but compared to digital media, it has very much taken a back seat recently. I mentioned last week in my introduction that I have this affinity for trading cards. Uh, and even trading cards, another example of physical print media had like a bit of a micro resurgence in popular culture. And then a few weeks ago, my wife and I visited our school book fair and I noticed something very interesting, that there, were this, there was this wide variety of wall posters. Do you guys remember wall posters? Yeah. I mean, I know they still exist, but like, do you remember the collection of wall posters that you had? on your wall, right? Who here had like a, a significant collection, right? Okay, all right, we're in good company here, okay? Well, I thought it would be appropriate to uh, remember some of the great old posters from my era and my friends, and so I actually have a few that are gonna be on the screen. A few of them starting with some bands that I thought uh, were really popular, so we'll throw the first one up there, right? Iconic Nirvana poster. Anybody seen this one before? Okay, maybe, maybe, yeah, your memories are going bad. Okay, um, the next one, Blink-182, right? Another iconic band, saw this poster for sure. Uh, another band that was really popular, Radiohead, still is, one of my favorite bands of all time, uh, spectacular. And then the last band one is, of course, the great insane. There we go, Don's excited. So then it was like, okay, bands, but also I was really into sports. And so I was like, I gotta show a couple of the sports posters that were really iconic in my brain. So the first one, of course, is the great Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. That was like, I remember seeing that one everywhere, right? Just everywhere. Uh, the next one, one of the uh, greatest athletes of all time. Yeah, King Griffey Jr., Jeff, that one's for you, brother. Yep, I know, I know. Uh, and then finally, the, the last um, one of athletes, the Rain Man himself, Sean Kim. I have so many sports cards. I have at least 40 of just him, right? Which is crazy. I don't know. I just loved it. But um, that wasn't even the, the, the most nostalgic version of posters. Uh, there's, there's another one that some of you, depending on how you were raised, might have been familiar with. And that, of course, is like a Christian theme poster. And so I brought uh, to you guys, yes. yes. <laughs> They were at our church frequently. Uh, so yeah. yeah. Interesting era, wasn't it? Posters. Print media. But all of those take a backseat to the one poster that is just drilled in my brain. Uh, that I could, I could never, I remember it so vividly, I remember multiple friends of mine had it. And it was a poster with Tupac, the rapper, with the phrase, only God can judge me. Okay, now that, yeah, some of you are like, oh, wow, that's what you're supposed to rap. It was an old day for me, okay? There was nothing cooler. By the way, I still listen to some rap, so we're going to talk about judgment today, okay? There was nothing cooler to me as a 13-year-old and like this great rap artist on a poster with a quote about God, yeah, right? Like right. that to me was just silly. Yeah. Now, of course, like there is a lot wrong with this poster, but, um, but this is why this one is so iconic to me. So I remember thinking, dude, Tupac thinks about God and only God can judge him. Okay, right? 
But I imagine that this wasn't born out of a healthy place. I think Tupac was probably sitting down in all of his success, and he um, had all of these people around him, critics and friends, all kind of telling him what to do and how to live and what he should do with his money and his time and his music. And uh, he eventually arrived at this um, song that eventually became a quote that inspired the poster only God can judge me, right? Yeah. Tupac's like, only God can judge me. Now, ironically, there is some theological correctness in this statement, but I doubt that Tupac cared about that, right? Instead, I think he felt a particular way, right? I think he, he, he felt, as we've all felt at one time or another, like he didn't want to be judged by other people, right? And he just was like, I'm going to shout that out i'm gonna write a song about it no one no one else can judge me only god can judge me and i get it right i get it i don't want to be judged feeling judged by another person is never a good feeling no one wants to be judged well today as you know in the passage that we read we're going to take a look at what jesus said in the sermon on the mount about the idea of judging judging others and being judged. We're going to get to that in just a second. But before we do, I just want to recap where this sermon has been because it's really important to understand that this was one sermon that we've been breaking down into a study for weeks. So it's important to remember, and for some of you who haven't been here every week, to, to understand that Jesus is following a line of thinking. And so he begins his sermon with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are this list of traits that a person exudes as they move along the path of human flourishing as the fullness of life, as Jesus would call it. And then he follows that up directly with the salt and light teaching. And it highlights this promise of a new covenant that Jesus is making with humanity. This new covenant um, is securing our salvation through faith in Jesus alone. Right? This was news to people. But this is what Jesus was doing, and that's the salt and the light. And that led us directly into the teaching on fulfilling the law. In this part of the sermon, Jesus contrasts the righteousness of the Pharisees with the righteousness of the heart, right? And a righteousness of the Pharisees is external, behaviorally oriented righteousness. But over here, Jesus is actually advocating for a true righteousness, a righteousness of the heart. And then to illustrate that, Jesus uses six examples, six of them, I did three, but there's six, <laughs> to illustrate the difference between external and internal righteousness. He talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye, loving our enemies. And these illustrations, if you go back and read them and study them, are all pointing, they're all an illustration of the same exact point. Our behaviors are directly related to the condition of our heart directly related to the condition of our heart. And then Jesus pivots from there. So don't do these things to now here are some things that you should do. Generosity towards others, specifically the needy, prayer, fasting. And all three of these examples are meant to highlight the same idea that in regards to righteousness, Jesus' primary concern is the posture of our heart. So he says, you're meant to do these things, but don't put them on display 
Do them so that I can work in your heart. Generosity, shaping the heart. Fasting, shaping the heart. Righteousness, shaping the heart. And so just like the behaviors that we're meant to avoid, we're also meant to engage behaviors. But again, not for external righteousness, but to let God shape our hearts into greater righteousness. Then last week we looked at a passage where Jesus tackled the topic of money and possessions and stuff. Don't you love it when the pastor preaches about money, right? It's super exciting. Wow, no one loves that. That's surprising. Jesus punctuated that, that topic. He punctuated that warning, that section with one phrase. You cannot serve both God and money. He didn't say you should not. He said you cannot serve both God and money. Amen. And then Jesus goes on to help his audience learn how to think about money, how to think about their possessions and our relationship to stuff. And he has such great wisdom and such great gentleness that he encourages us with this reminder that our heavenly father knows exactly what we need and he will provide it. And so in that truth, tandem with the teaching on possessions and money, Jesus instructs us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and the things we need will be given to us as well. Again, we see this theme that Jesus is far less concerned with the practical relationship that we have with money and far more concerned with how money <laughs> masters us, how it controls our heart, how it controls our mind. Serving God is the pathway to the fullness of life that Jesus teaches about in all of the Gospels and all other pathways, all other versions of lordship result in deadness. That's what Jesus is getting at. You cannot serve both God and money. And so that leads us to our passage for today. Okay, now today is, as we talked about, judging others. And don't worry, this is not a how-to course. Okay? That's not what we're doing here. We're not going to discover the top five ways to judge people in a godly manner, uh, nor will we be discussing the secret recipe to successful judgment tactics. But rather, I think by the end of today, what you'll find, um, you'll be highly encouraged because any responsibility that God has given us at all related to judgment is meant for the building up of those we love. Any responsibility at all, which we'll talk about in just a second. In this section, Jesus is going to call us to be self-reflective, to be merciful, and to be loving. That's what he's going to talk about in this section. So let's talk about judging others, okay? This term judge or judging or judgment, it's everywhere in our culture. Allie, who's just leading us in worship was teasing me, don't judge me. And I said, well, we're talking about that today, girl. <laughs> it has all these different meanings, right? Um, here's just a few examples. Our judicial system uh, is meant to make judgments between parties that can't agree or parties who have violated an agreement. Other times, judgment is used um, in the terms of competition. Competitions have judges or are to be judged to regulate the results of that competition. Another application is that if you look at the Myers-Briggs type personality typing test, one of the delineations is between somebody who's judging and perceiving. 
And then a person who is judgmental is just slang for someone who we wish would just keep their opinions to themselves. Right? So we have all of these applications of judge or judging or judgment. And every single one of them influences how we read this text. Doesn't it? When you, when you hear that word, when you hear Jesus talking about it, your experience with judgment and your understanding, cultural understanding, standings of judging and being judged and where that applies, those all inform how you read this passage. And so Jesus is teaching his audience how to think correctly about the concept of judgment. Now, our modern understanding of biblical judgment has two primary applications, okay? The first one is condemnation. And the other one is discernment, right? So we have condemnation and discernment. Condemnation is being declared wrong as a result of sin. That's the basic definition of condemnation. Romans 5.16, it'll be on the screen. It says this, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought Justification. Webster's Dictionary defines condemnation as this. To declare to be reprehensible, wrong, evil, usually after weighing evidence and without reservation. So sin brings condemnation, and condemnation is the declaration of one's wrongness. So condemnation is the state of judgment we sit under, as a result of sin, but Jesus came to change all of that. Jesus came to change all of that by paying the penalty for our sin and taking our condemnation that we deserved off of our, sh off of our shoulders and putting it on his shoulders. And I love Romans 8 verses 1 through 2 because it captures this reality. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So, condemnation is the declaration of our wrongness as a result of our sin. But Jesus graciously removes condemnation from our lives through the gift of graceful salvation. That's condemnation. The other application is discernment. Now, discerning is defined as showing insight and understanding. So in this case, the word judgment is actually meant to convey someone's ability to give insight to a decision or to understand a complicated situation. Hebrews 4, verse 12 captures this idea. It says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing even to the dividing of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and quick to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In this verse, we see that scripture does the great work of discerning in our life. Knowing scripture is crucial to being able to discern in the big decisions of life. Mm -hmm. So discernment is a spiritual gift that God may also give people to help the church and for the building up of the church and encouraging the saints. We see this example in Solomon's life. Uh, once he became king over Israel at a very young age, he took that responsibility very seriously and he prayed to God to give him wisdom. First Kings 
chapter 3, verse 9 says this. So give your servant, this is Solomon's prayer, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So discernment is the necessary and wonderful spiritual gift that God gives to those who love him. So we have condemnation and we have discernment. And they're both components of judgment, especially in Scripture. So let's use these applications of judgment to understand and see what Jesus is getting at. Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Do not judge or you too will be judged. So is Jesus saying, do not condemn or you too will be condemned? Or is he saying, do not discern or you too will be discerned? Right? You get it. Right? In this particular uh, part of this sermon, Jesus is getting at the idea of condemnation. Um, he's setting before his audience that they are not to condemn others or they too will be condemned. Right? If you read verse 1 with that, substitute in there. Do not condemn or you too will be condemned. It's pretty straightforward, right? And we already know that in Romans 8.1, that Jesus says that there is no condemnation for those who are in him. So there's actually no need for us to bring condemnation either. If Jesus is not going to condemn, then neither should we. And he takes it a step further in verse chapter or verse 2 of chapter 7. He says, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you as well. Jesus is warning us, if you choose to condemn another person, you too will be condemned. And the harshness that you use in that condemnation will be the measure of harshness, harshness that is used against you. Scripture is clear in matters of condemnation that God alone is the judge and that we are not. I'm going to read two verses to you, James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, and then a psalm. The passage in James says this, it'll be on your screen. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And then Psalm 9, verses 8, 7 and 8 says, The Lord reigns forever. He established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. So God alone sits on the throne of judgment, and his judgment is righteous, and it is equitable, which is actually really good news for all of us, is it not? It's really, really good news for all of us. So I guess what I'm saying with that recap, all in all, is if Tupac was saying that only God can condemn him, he was right. He was right, right? Yeah. So in some ways, he was getting it right. That was the entire, well, that's not the entire. Let's <laughs> right? That's not the fullness of it. Because we know that there's another application for the word judgment. We covered it, discernment. And in this case, this is the type of judgment, the work of identifying the line between what is helpful and harmful, between what is good and bad, 
between what is right and what is wrong. Discernment is a gift from God that is meant to guide us and those who are around us into the fullness of life that Jesus talks about, that his teachings and that his life are guiding us into. However, in this portion of the application, Jesus continues to caution. So it is a gift, but he continues to caution us about the use of judgment and how we judge the action of others. He says in verses 3 and 4, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. So in my imagination, during this sermon, Jesus gets to this point of the sermon. And uh, the people who are listening hear this particular section of the sermon. And they kind of have that like highbrow like, laughter. Like, oh, Jesus, you're so funny. That's so exaggerated. A plank in my eye? Are you serious? Right? Like, just imagine, like, the audience is kind of sitting around, but then Jesus, oh, man, he punctuated, punctuates it in verse 5, and he says, you hypocrite. Laughter stops. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And Jesus is so wise. He's just, he's such a great teacher. He leads them right to this moment. And then he confronts the hypocritical nature that was in them and that is in us. And the reason he does that is because the hypocrisy in these people and the hypocrisy that exists in our souls is actually a barrier to good discernment. It's a barrier to what he's actually inviting us into. But why does Jesus use the term speck for one and plank for another? Is he suggesting that one person's sin is greater than another? Not at all. That's not at all what he's suggesting. In fact, in God's kingdom, sin is equal. Now, some sin can cause more emotional and relational and physical pain while we're here on earth, but the eternal penalty is the same. Until Jesus, we are condemned. In Jesus, we are no longer condemned. So this is my speculation. It doesn't say this in the passage, but this is my speculation on why Jesus uses those two examples, the plank and the speck. Not only did he want to get his point across, right? He's gathering the attention like a good teacher, and he says this amazing word picture that captures their attention, and they're like, that is crazy. That's such hyperbole. That's part of it, I think. But I also think that he wants us to be aware and to not miss the huge opportunity we overlook when we look past our own problems to try to focus on someone else's. doesn't want us paying attention to someone else's issues, the speck in their life, when there's a plank sticking out of our forehead. Right. Now, I think we can all agree that we are often tempted to become experts in what someone else should do. Anybody have that gift? No, don't raise your hand. Don't, don't raise your hand. 
two. <laughs> this is judgment, right? This is judgment. I think that they just need to be the type of parent that blank. I think they should just spend their money on blank. I think they just need to work on blank instead of worrying about blank. Now, this is not suggesting that we can't be helpful, that we can't be a discerning person to help people make a good or right decisions. But so much of what happens in these moments are examples that are not rooted in godly discernment. Jesus is helping us understand that we need to be very careful about how we judge people and judge situ situations. And if we do, if we do, when we do, we should be very fair and very full of mercy. We need to be very careful, and then if we do, we should be very fair and very full of mercy. I love John Wesley's thoughts on this matter. He preached a few sermons. John Wesley was a Methodist preacher from England. He says, Jesus condemns any way of evaluating someone else that is contrary to love. I think that captures it pretty good. So as I was, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was commenting to a friend of mine that I ran to this week, another pastor friend, I said, as I've been preparing these last few sermons where there's these like really sharp topics, I just think to myself, God keeps leading me back to a question for my own life. See, you only have to sit under the weight of the scripture for 30 minutes or so. If you choose to ignore it, I would highly suggest that you don't do that. But I'm sitting under it all week, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, why are you so smart? How does this happen to me every time? So I was preparing, and I kept coming back to this question. Why do I, at times, feel so compelled to judge and evaluate others? Why? Why do I do that? So I reflected. And as I reflected on this very important question that God kept leading me back to, I came to one common root in all of the situations, and that root was my own insecurity. The root of my judgment, the root of my evaluation in an unhealthy way was rooted in insecurity. I might be insecure about what someone does or doesn't have. I may evaluate them or judge them to justify my own discomfort with wanting what they want or being glad that I don't have to deal with what they deal with. But also it might just be easier to think about someone else's spec so that I don't have to do the painful plank work in my own life, right? But Jesus, again, gracious and wise and smart, is inviting his audience into this very significant work. This work of plank removal work. This deep work that is so hard and it scares us sometimes to confront the planks that are in our own life. The work of addressing the plank in your eye is the deep work 
that God is gracious enough to call us into and give us a community of people called the church so that we can help each other, right? So that we can uh, lift each other up because all of us have plenty of work to do, don't we? We all, and I mean all of us, I know most of you pretty well, have plain work to do, including me. And see, and then the gift of the church is that when we get around each other and testify to how good God is, despite the difficult things in our life, these moments are meant to encourage and bring energy to the other plank work that's happening. You hear the good news of someone overcoming something or God blessing them, and you're like, yes, that's amazing. I, too, have hope. But, as Jesus is pointing out, the tempting distraction is to turn against our neighbor. To take that testimony of good and use it against them to justify our own judgment or improper evaluation. To fixate on the speck that is in their eye. It's for their benefit, of course, right? It's for their benefit. So Jesus is graciously and directly saying, don't do that. Don't do that. You have plenty of your own stuff for us to work on. Don't be distracted because it only delays the good work that God is trying to do in your life. When you fixate on the speck and ignore the plank, you are leaving the gracious opportunity that God is giving you to remove that plank. Okay, so let's talk about then, and just in case, just in case you actually do have the opportunity, maybe someone's invited your feedback or someone said, hey, can you weigh into this? Or you think you have the spiritual gift of discernment? Because that's a real thing too. Let's pretend that if you have that opportunity, you can go about it in a godly manner. <laughs> Here's how I would suggest you approach this. First of all, start with prayer. If someone is inviting your discernment, not your condemnation, but your discernment, start with prayer. Pray. Pray like crazy. Invite God to do the work in your heart before you can help someone else do what God's doing in their heart. And then once you get there, you need to do the plank removal work of self-reflection. I pray this all the time. God, take from me any desire to push my own agenda in this conversation and to be faithful to your design for this person. And then finally, if you get to that point where you've prayed and prayed and you're certain that God is weeding out your own agenda for this person's life, then I'd like to start with a lot of questions. Tell me about this situation. Tell me how it makes you feel. Tell me how you're doing with that. How can we serve you? How can we help you? Because asking people questions help, helps them organize their thoughts. What is God doing? And then in that moment, I stay tethered to grace and I flee from condemnation because I'm not the judge. And then I focus on building them up, lifting them up, not tearing them down, but constructing something useful that, as the Bible says, is for the benefit of them in the church. In Ephesians 4, verses 15 through 16, it says this, Instead, speaking truth and love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is head, that is Christ. 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So here's the big reminder for today's message and really through this whole sermon. This entire sermon that Jesus is preaching, the Sermon on the Mount, is about how to enter the fullness of life now. Right? We know through salvation that we have a future that is secured with Christ. But he didn't just say, okay, now that you're saved, hope your life sucks. No, he didn't say that at all. He's inviting you into a full life now. And this sermon is about how to do that. And at the core of this entire sermon is an invitation out of the destructive behavior. In this particular case, it's judgment. It's condemnation where there needs to be none. It's, it's weighing in in people's lives where you are not meant to be. And in the case that you do, it's a gift of discernment that God is calling us into. And that way of living, following Jesus' design, is how we enter human flourishing. So in this section on judging others, Jesus is saying, you do not need to carry the weight of condemnation because it was never yours to carry in the first place. Instead, he is inviting us into a life of self-reflection and loving discernment for the purpose of building up the people which we know is the church. And so throughout this entire sermon, there's been this underlying theme of greater Righteousness, and it's a righteousness of the heart. It is not an external righteousness. It's an internal righteousness, and we all need it. It is meant to shape and guide us into the full life that Jesus promises. So I want to pray for us. I'm going to pray, then we're going to take communion, and then we're going to sing another song. But this prayer, in particular for today, is that we would walk into the full life that Jesus is leading us into in this sermon. And that we would in particular have the strength to walk away from condemnation, first of all for ourselves, because we do that a lot, and then from others. We, we try not to, but sometimes we condemn. And that we would walk towards the call to build each other up with mercy and grace and love. And that in the event that we have the ability to weigh in and discern that God would work through us. That's going to be our prayer today. So will you pray with me? God, we take this word, this hard, difficult passage at times, reflecting on our own inability to escape it, reflecting on the planks that are in our own eyes at times. And we just want to thank you that you've invited us into your kingdom, into your salvation, that our eternity is secure by faith alone in Jesus. That is a beautiful gift in and of itself. But while we're here, you're also inviting us into a fullness of life that requires us at time to do deep work, to do self-reflection, to, to lean into your mercy, to lean into your grace, and to extend those things to each other. What a beautiful gift that is. So I pray that we would have the courage to do that, that we would have the courage to stand up to our own internal desires to evaluate others inappropriately, to judge someone else's behavior from a point of no understanding. And instead, we would lean into the call 
to discern rightly, to lean into your word, to pray, to ask a lot of questions and begin the process of joining together. As you said, every ligament and structure in the body, may we be that as well. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your loves. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're gonna take communion together on your seat. You should have some communion elements. And I just want to let you know that if you feel like you need prayer after you take communion, we're going to have Mike and Karen standing in the back right over here underneath the storm to pray with you. Okay, so you're welcome to take advantage of that. But I want to bless these elements. Now, for the Christ follower, this is a really significant event. For someone who's not a Christ follower at all, these are just, just a wafer and juice, okay? So that's what it is. You're welcome to consume them. Um, at your own pleasure. But for the Christ follower, what communion is, is actually a really important gift. It is a remembering moment of the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so we love to celebrate that as often as we can. That's what we're doing here with this. We hear a message about judgment and condemnation. And we remember that Jesus has none of that for us. That he is not condemning us. In fact, because of his cross, that we can tap into that. Be free of that. And then we reflect on that as we take these elements. So Jesus said to do this as often as we can to remember that gift. And that's what we're doing. So I'm going to pray for these. And then you can consume them. And then you can stand and worship with us and get prayer if you feel led to get prayer. But don't miss the opportunity to reflect on the gift that communion is. God, we come to you and again just thank you for this gift, this tangible reminder of your grace in our lives. I pray that as we receive it, that it would do um, the heavy work of graciously reminding us that you love us, that you died for us, so that we can be free from sin and condemnation. We're just so thankful for that. And as we take that, I pray that we would worship you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So you can take the crackers.